this week we're going to get into family crisis. So I want to start off differently. That almost sounded like we were going to create a family crisis, Liz. Um, <laughs> no. We won't. <laughs> we won't do that. No, we're definitely not going to create a family crisis, <laughs> family but we're but we're going to help. That's yeah. our that's our main goal. This is a helping podcast, right. not a that's hurting right. one. <laughs> right. But I want to stray away from mental health for a second, and I want to talk specifically about the podcast. So this uh-huh. week marks two years since we started. Okay. Wow. Yes. Time falls. <laughs> right. And another really exciting achievement is we finally hit a hundred thousand downloads in total. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. That's wonderful. Congratulations. And congratulations to you too. So I thought that was really exciting. And I wanted to share this with our listeners because we appreciate you guys so much. And we love when we get emails from you and we love doing topics for you guys. And we just appreciate that you've been on this incredible journey with us. I mean, it's something that I have loved doing and Mark, I'm sure you feel the same way. I enjoy it a lot. Yeah. This has been fantastic. All right. As I've said to you, I can talk about a lot of things forever. So I know. That's well, my problem, right? Not not being able to talk about something. So oh yeah, we we could talk about anything and turn it into <laughs> mental health. Right. Like, and then we'll make an entire episode or three about it. Yeah. So all right. So on to family crisis. So we're going to start off by kind of talking about what constitutes as a family crisis because I think that this is something that families will experience at least one time in their life, some sort of crisis or turbulent event or something that's going to put their family into upheaval. And I'll have a couple of recent examples myself and and I'll kind of walk you guys through why it maybe wasn't a severe crisis in my family. Some families will go through multiple crises throughout their lifespan. And some, you know, we'll get into, say, a chronic situation too, which Mm -hmm. is you know, something that just goes on through the lifetime. So it doesn't necessarily mean there are uh, a lot of different crises that are happening. It's just, you may have one that then continues for a long long time. Yeah. Okay. So what constitutes a family crisis to you, Mark? Well, I think that, I mean, I think it depends on the family. Okay. Uh, As we'll get, you know, as we start to talk a little bit more about this model, I wrote some notes on our outline. And I think that that we don't realize how much our perception colors the way we experience things. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe a lot of people realize that perception is a lot in how we experience. But what I've, I think I've used the term before of uh, narrative. And we all create narratives in our lives. And the narrative we create about any particular event really could send it down the path of being a crisis or not a crisis. Mm-hmm. Now, some some events are certainly, I think, would fall into that category of crisis. So for instance, the one that comes, to, I mean, there are many, but one that comes to mind is, say, the sudden death of a parent in a young family. Yeah. I don't think you could create a narrative where that's okay or where it's not a crisis. Correct. Yeah. And I think, you know, it. it I would think that That could probably be a short-term or a long-term crisis. But, you know, there are things that happen that are going to be crises. So if you think about your family life, and I would guess for a lot of our listeners, hopefully a lot of their life is, it goes along day to day, pretty kind of the same. You know, we Mm -hmm. get into patterns. I I would guess that for you and uh, Curtis and your kids, that it's 
kind of that way because that's the way it runs best, right? Yep. Even for Lindy and myself, you know, we don't have kids in the home anymore. And so, but we have a pattern. Yeah. And every once in a while we deviate from the pattern. So I think a crisis is something that throws you out of your typical pattern Mm -hmm. for a long time period. But I think a crisis is when someone in your family or in your circle is hurt in some way. Yep. So for instance, could be an emotional hurt, could be a physical hurt, could be some sort of abuse that you find out about. So I don't know that there's a good definition of what makes a crisis. But I think when we get into this model, I I think the advantage of looking at models is it helps to get some clarity over yeah. how over how you look at the events and how you can put them in some sort of structure. I think that's what a model does for us. Yes. It gives some sort of structure to what's going on in our lives. And often I think that's helpful for mm-hmm. setting that structure. Correct. And so this model that we're going to reference, it comes from Robert Lauer's book, Marriage and Family, The Quest for Intimacy. And it's a textbook that I am currently reading for school. And there's a lot of really good information in this book that I like. And it is a textbook. So, I mean, if anybody is interested, they can, of course, go look it up. But I I mean, just know that it's a textbook, right? And it's meant for academia study. And so it's very long. Right. It's right. very long. Textbooks are really pricey. I don't know if that, uh, I mean, yeah. when I, at least when I was back. In oh, they, well, oh, it's even worse now. Probably they're incredibly pricey. So, yeah, this is called the ABCX model for family crisis and it's a plus B plus C equals X. And so X being the crisis and the book wasn't necessarily like, they didn't really emphasize this point, but I think it's worth emphasizing that the difference between a serious crisis and maybe just a mini crisis. Because when I think of a crisis, I can think of, I think I'll just start with a good example that we had in my family very recently, where my son woke up, he's three and a half years old, and he woke up and his eyes were open, but he wasn't responding to anything. Something was very, very wrong. And I knew immediately, and we rushed him to the emergency room And he was so severe. They didn't even ask his name. They didn't even, they just, they took one look at him and they treated him right away. So it turned out to be hypoglycemic shock. His blood sugar had dropped below 20 and he spent the whole week in the hospital. So this is, I guess, what we could maybe call a mini crisis because, I mean, it definitely threw us out of our routine for that whole week because I'm gone all week. And, you know, even just that event was traumatic for right. me and Curtis to rush our, to, I mean, to look at your three and a half year old son and say something is seriously wrong. And to ask yourself at this point, do is it quicker to call 911 or do we just take you to the emergency room? That moment in itself is a crisis. Now, my family, we were able to navigate through that very smoothly. And we'll get into why that is. And I think it's because what we have, what Robert Lauer called a resilient family. And so we have resiliency in our family because we have good, strong emotional connections and we're all really bonded. We all work together and we're a team. And so, you know, we were able to get through it and my son is fine now. And, and, you know, that's really the most important thing, but that could have been considered a crisis. It's just not a long-term crisis. No, it, it is a crisis and it is traumatic. Yeah. Certainly for you and Curtis, probably for the other sibling. Yeah. And certainly for your son, you know, there's some mm-hmm. trauma in, involved in that being in a place where 
you know, it's confusing for a, a child yeah. to be in a hospital like that. Let me just, before you, because hopefully you'll, I think you're going to define the AB, ABC and mm-hmm. X, what that is. But I had a thought on models, and I think you and I have talked about models like this before. They're very popular in any graduate school program. Yeah. But, and I don't think it's just mental health programs. I think that in, in many programs that you have, and it could be finance, are going to be models. Economics are going to be models. In mental health, they're going to be models. I think that it's good to get the information. It creates structure, as I said. I think when you actually get out and start practicing, I don't know of anyone, I don't know that I have ever used a model. I don't know that anyone in our group has ever used a model either. So I don't know. I, I guess I'm questioning how practical they are. Right. But, and and I was thinking about this, and I think in some ways they are practical in that we're, we're going to get into some of the different ways to approach a, a crisis based on this model. Mm-hmm. And I think what happens after you start practicing and you know the this model, then some of these things just kind of happen. They just kind of it's not like, oh, I'm going to follow this model. Yeah. It's almost inherently you start doing some of these things mm-hmm. that create the structure. And I think that's probably true for many at least mental health practitioners. If you're dealing with someone who's you know, in a crisis, then you're going to go through some of these steps. I don't know that you say, oh, I'm following the ABCX model. Right. I think you're just following the steps. So maybe I have to retract my statement that models aren't helpful. I think that they just become part of your practice probably. And you don't ever say, oh, I'm following this model. Correct. And to me, it's interesting, right? And so, and, but I mean, everything is interesting to me right now because, you know, Uh this is a new field of study. And so it's really exciting, but I, I thought it would just be a good perspective for our listeners to have of, this is the way therapists are looking at it. This is the way they're seeing and analyzing the information. Well, I think it's important for listeners also, you know, I, I think it's true. You could go online and probably Google ABCX crisis model and you'd get the, the exactly what we've got here. And so I think it's a good way to think about if you're in crisis or just for your information, I think it's a good way to to approach you know, looking at a crisis, even if you aren't a mental health practitioner. That's true. Yeah. And I I mean, you know, knowledge is power. And mm-hmm. as human yeah. beings, we love to have structure and we love to have meaning. We love to have labels. We like, we like things to make sense. And I think models can help achieve that. Right. And what does it give you? It gives you a sense of control. Yes. That's what, right. That's what yeah. and, we, and that's what I think we love as, or we crave as a species as control over our lives. And and I think that's what can be especially hard for kids. And so one of the things that I did to help my daughter through this crisis is because this happened at like 630 in the morning and she's getting ready to go to school. And so like she's getting ready to get on the bus. And yeah. so the last thing she saw is us carrying her brother out the door, going to the emergency room. And I mean, she had no idea. And then yeah. she goes off to school like nothing happened. Right. And so, you know, Eventually, later that day, a few hours later, I called the school and I said, hey, I need to talk to my daughter. You know, this happened with her brother and I just need to let her know everything's okay. I couldn't help thinking she must be terrified. Like she has no idea and she just has to pretend like everything's normal. And that can be hard for a 10-year-old girl who loves her brother. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this family crisis model. So A is the stressor event. 
So for example, what happened with my son, right? That was our stressor event. He's rushed, yes, he's rushed to the emergency room. B is the management of the stress through coping resources that the family has. So B is really resources, right? And so we immediately utilized our resources. Obviously, we utilized emergency services. We also utilized my father-in-law. He lives with us. And so family is an invaluable resource. And he's been an invaluable resource for us in the past as well. And then another resource that we utilized was community so, I mean, we immediately were able to call upon some people from church to help us out, right? Yeah. I mean, we had somebody come that day to help Curtis give a priesthood blessing. And for those who are unfamiliar, it's a religious ceremony that involves prayer. And that was something that was important to Curtis. So that was certainly a resource that we utilized. And some people from church also brought us some meals and were just very, very supportive. And so mm-hmm. resources are so important. Right. Community, to, community is really important. Yes. Yeah. Yes. In a family crisis. All right. And so C is, I think, kind of a, a big one here. And that's the family's definition of the event. Right. Which and, goes back to what I was trying to say earlier about yeah. perception and the narrative you create of it. Mm-hmm. And again, sometimes I think we do have control over how we view you know, a, a narrative. You give an example here, if we, mm-hmm. you know, about the, I think it's a, a two families and yeah. one of them, uh, uh, maybe the father in each, they lose employment. And so. Mm-hmm. So it's the Smiths and the Joneses. And so the Smiths define it as an undesirable, but also as a challenge. And right. so they decide that the family members will work together to do something to save money. And so B is the interaction of these three produce no serious crisis for them, which is X. Whereas the other family, they describe it as a disaster and they just expect, yeah. yeah, And they just expect. So, you know, C, they'd look at it as a disaster. And then B is they just expect the father to figure out something to do, like figure it out, make some money. Come on, keep our lifestyle going. Think of the pressure. You know, right? Oh, yeah. itself creates a pressure, which I mean, that's really hard. I mean, if you're going out and trying to find a job and you and you feel the pressure from everyone in your family, the community, I go back to community because, you know, if you have a strong community, even in that type of situation, you, you can often call on the community to help out as mm-hmm. well. And so a lot of it is how you handle it yourself in the family but also it goes back to what resources you have. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so one of the things that somebody else came through and kind of modified this model a little bit, and they divided A into three different factors. So A Mm -hmm. being the stressor event. So they also added B, the hardship that accompanies the event, and then C, pileups. So you can have multiple things at once, right? So, I mean, it's like everything happens at once. Like, let's say maybe somebody gets chronically ill and then somebody loses their job. And, you know, I I mean, and then maybe there's something else going on. Maybe a kid is really struggling in school or maybe a kid's getting in trouble with the law. That's a lot to happen all at once, right? Right. And And then often what happens with that type of cascade is that relationships start to suffer. And so even the parents, you know, because there's so much stress, 
-hmm. in the home because of these events that sometimes, sadly, the relationship breaks down, which then just becomes a whole nother crisis. Yeah. And so I have another good example of this in my own family that we were able to navigate through that was a little bit of a a bigger deal, I guess. I mean, it wasn't quite as traumatic as what we went through recently with our son, but it was still certainly a crisis in that it threw everything into an upheaval. And so this was the week of Thanksgiving. Everybody in my house got the flu. So, I mean, that was kind of the first, the first big thing is nobody felt good. Everybody felt sick and the three adults in the house are so miserable. We didn't even bother cooking Thanksgiving dinner because we all felt so terrible. And so that weekend, my son ended up being in the hospital for dehydration and he ended up having to stay for two days. And at the end of his, towards the end of his stay, I get appendicitis and I, I, I end up having emergency surgery. And so, you know, it was just kind of like one thing after another. I mean, it was just bam, 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 bam. And so at this at the time I was working full time. And Mm -hmm. so all of a sudden I'm out of a job for two weeks. Like I can't work for two weeks and it's right around Christmas. We've got all all of a sudden where it's like, well, now we're going to have a ton of these medical bills and I'm not going to work for two weeks. Right. It was, it was a crisis for our family. Mm -hmm. But we have we have such great community resources. And, you know, and in this instance, our father-in-law was hands down our most valuable resource. We didn't even have to ask him. He just started getting up and taking our other two, getting our other two daughters ready for school. We didn't Mm -hmm. even have to ask. He just did it. Right. And so he really stepped in and he just kind of took over where we needed him to. And, you know, and then. Curtis and Bill, my father-in-law, they really had to step up and do a lot because, I mean, I spent pretty much a week in bed recovering from surgery, right? And so, you know, again, it was a crisis, but once I was recovered from my surgery, we were good. You know, I mean, things went back to normal and we were able to navigate easily through the crisis because we have strong relationships, we have strong bonds, we relied on our community. Now, I think that just as easily could have gone the other way. Right. I mean, Bill and Curtis could have gotten bitter and resentful because here I am sitting around all day doing nothing. And not that, you know, most people would generally be like that, but it can be hard. It can be frustrating. And so as frustrations mount, they're exhausted, they're tired, they maybe start to get snippy or short with people. And then you can, this tension can form. And Mm -hmm. so I can very easily see how a stressor event like that can cascade. Yeah. And pile up and lead to more and more and more crises, right? right. It very it's hard, easy. it's hard to dig yourself out yeah. from under the pile, you yeah. know, if it gets to be too big. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, let's talk about coping methods because I think that's going to be the most effective. So, in in the book, they go into different types of stressor events. And I mean, we could spend a little time. Okay. Can, can we just run through? I really like this, actually. Okay. I like this part. Yeah. All right. Yeah, um, let's do it. So I, I don't know that. And we'll, we'll go through it quickly so that we yes. don't yeah. run out of time. But the what, what I like about it is I don't know that I would consider this necessarily part of this model. I think mm-hmm. they're just defining for people different types of events. And so I think for our listeners, it might be helpful to be able to, again, it's it's creating structure around yeah. Uh, what these events are. So internal 
or external. So internal, some something that comes from inside the family, external, something that comes from outside the family, earthquakes, terrorism, something uh, economic, something that you mm-hmm. can't control. And so, you know, internal, external is a way to look at it. Then the next one, normative or non-normative. And normative are those types of things that one can expect within the lifespan, like in the life cycle, birth, adolescent, launching out of the home, marriage, aging, death. Those are all things that we can expect. They're non-normative. Getting a divorce, dying young, a war, being taken hostage, things like that. Yeah. Those are non-normative. Then they have ambiguous or non-ambiguous. So ambiguous events, events for which you can't get a clear picture of the clear facts. And I think this does happen sometimes because I've heard clients talk about um, often it's in terms of, uh, say, someone else in their family that they don't really know what's going on yeah. and that's ambiguous. They know there's something happening, but they don't know what it is. And then non-ambiguous are just the opposite events for which there are very clear facts available. What What's happening, how long, to whom. So again, I think, you know, if you're if you could choose, you'd want a non-ambiguous uh, mm-hmm. crisis. You'd want to have that, the knowledge. As you said, you know, knowledge is power. Volitional or non-volitional. Volitional would be something that's sought out. So for instance, uh, if you choose to change jobs. Now, some people might think of that as a crisis. Going to college might be a crisis. Maybe there's financial obligation associated with that. Or mm-hmm. even the one that is called, a, they list a wanted pregnancy. So a lot of people want to get pregnant. I don't know that that falls into the category. I I wonder about the term volitional, that maybe if it's volitional, it's not really going to be a crisis. What do you think about that? I think it can be, but it can can be be hard. It can be a stressor event that starts the crisis. But it's not the crisis, right? I think so. What I would guess is that it could be the catalyst. Right. So like, okay, yeah, you start a new job and it doesn't work out. Now you've got a crisis. You have a, you get pregnant, right? You're trying to get pregnant and you miscarry. Now you're in a crisis. So maybe that's what it's referring to is these events can be a catalyst. Right. Okay. And then non-volitional, we've talked about some getting laid off from your job or maybe the sudden and unexpected death of some loved one. And then a chronic situation is one that goes on you know, for a long period of time. And so if you had, oh, they mentioned like in this uh, diabetes, some sort of chemical addiction. The interesting one, racial discrimination, which uh, we don't talk about a lot, but there are certainly segments of our population where they face racial uh, discrimination every day, every Mm -hmm. single day. And so that's Mm -hmm. a chronic stressor, chronic crisis for them, as opposed to acute, which is something that lasts a short time. So I think just having those definitions of, event, of of different events for me is kind of helpful. And so hopefully yeah. um, listeners might find it helpful. Okay. On to coping. How do yes. we cope? Yes. So, and another thing that we've talked about earlier is that not all stressor events are equal, right? right. And so you take for the example of my two family crises that I mentioned, I mean, one was maybe more traumatic, but was actually a little easier to navigate through because it was just shorter. Whereas the one that happened back in November, this pileup, I mean, Bill and Curtis are already exhausted from recovering from the flu. And now here they have to do extra stuff to help take care of me while I'm 
recovering from surgery, you know? And so in some ways that was a bit of a harder crisis, at least as far as everybody. So now Lauer breaks coping patterns into two categories, ineffective and effective. So, and I think it's so easy, or I guess one thing that I think it's okay to kind of go through these in cycles, Mm -hmm. right? I think you can very easily cycle through these ineffective and effective coping mechanisms, especially if it's a long-term crisis, right? Or if it's maybe like something that's like chronic, for example, you have a child who's diagnosed with diabetes Yeah, that, you know, that's something that's going to be lifelong to deal with. And so I think that in these instances, this information is good to have, and it's good to recognize these effective versus ineffective but just realize that you're probably going to spend some time in these ineffective coping strategies and it's okay, you know, and you can correct. Right. And I hope it's minimal time because yes. they really are hard. And I've seen this. And so one example that I have is a couple who are struggling with their own relationship issues, but then they had an adolescent son who had some substance abuse issues mm-hmm. and they got stuck in the scapegoating So here are the three ineffective, denial, avoidance, and scapegoating. And so often you might get one parent in this situation, for instance, there there was never any denial, but there was certainly avoidance, like, okay, we have to deal with this. And there was certainly scapegoating. And the problem with that is that it really takes your attention away from what the real issue is. The real issue is your son is struggling and he has a substance abuse problem. And if if you're dealing with scapegoating, then what you're doing is you're probably blaming each other yep. or, you know, avoidance, not really taking it seriously. Like, And so what happens is that, let's say, parents, the primary relationship, that relationship starts to fracture. Mm-hmm which makes it very, very difficult. And this was very difficult for this particular couple. And it it almost, it didn't, it didn't tank the relationship, but it almost did. And uh, they really came through it well after Mm -hmm. a while. So I think, you know, those three are very ineffective and you should try to avoid those when, especially the scapegoating. The scapegoating is just blaming, you know, this is, this is something you did that caused this problem very unhelpful. It just doesn't have how it's not helpful in that moment. And I, I would say that in any instance, scapegoating is not going to help. I mean, and you can apply that to anything. I mean, think of a loss of a job, you know, blaming the person who lost their job is not helpful. Right. Uh, I think that what can be helpful though, is after you've resolved the crisis, you can go back and approach it in terms of what could we or what could you have done differently to maybe change this so that you learn from sure. it? But I wouldn't I wouldn't call that scapegoating or blaming. I would just say you're trying to learn from whatever happened so that it becomes less likely it's going to happen again. Yes. Now, denial and avoidance, those can be a little trickier to avoid. I mean, mm-hmm. or it, at least maybe mentally, right? I mean, because... Sometimes you can't always deny a problem that's right in front of you, but I think it's sometimes easy to some to maybe try to deny the severity of it. So if yeah. the example that you mentioned, you might think, well, our son's not that bad. His drug problem isn't that bad. That's what, yeah, that's what I hear. In fact, exactly. From right. one parent usually, not both. But it's not helpful no, to, it's to not. do that, you know, or it's avoiding... Not. Which And that can also be a form of avoidance as well. It's not that bad. Maybe we don't need to do anything about it. Or, you know, you maybe don't take enough of an aggressive approach. Mm -hmm. So Exactly. That's why I think those three, they're 
ineffective. I think sometimes they can be harmful. Yes. And I mean, with the denial and the avoidance, I mean, try to recognize if you get into that, because I think it's going to be very common in a long term crisis because it's going to be hard. You're going to want to deny it. You're going to want to avoid it because it's not pleasant. And as human beings, we want to avoid unpleasant things. So just be aware and try to pay attention to if you're getting in those cycles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So effective coping mechanisms. And I think the first one is probably the most important one, and that's take responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. And this ties into, I've mentioned this before with couples work with uh, Gottman. He says the best way to handle, say, a crisis in the couple or a conflict is for you to take responsibility. It just makes everything easier after that. And that's probably the reason. I wonder if that's the reason they list it first is Mm -hmm. that when you take responsibility, it tends to make everything that comes after it easier. Yeah. Yep. And I think, I think what happens if you take responsibility, this is an obvious statement. I realized that then the scapegoating doesn't happen. Yes. The the blaming doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, correct. So the next one is affirm your own and your family's worth. And so this one, I think positive affirmations, we know that gratitude or trying to stay positive is good for mental health, even when it's hard. And I know it can be so hard to find the positive, but I mean, it's important to do that. And it's important to, to say to your family, you know, this is tough right now, because again, you don't want to deny it or avoid it. You need to say, this is hard, but the important thing that we're going to focus on is we're going to focus on being together. We're going to focus on being a family and we're going to focus on working through this hard time, right? So you're affirming your love for each other. Right. And it tends to pull you together into, yes. a, common, in, into a common cause. Yes. And yeah. so the third one, balance self-concern with other concern. This is a tricky one because it can be so easy when you're going through a family crisis to get really caught up in yourself and I need this and I need this and I need this. Well, you you do have needs and you do need your own coping mechanisms, but consider your spouse's needs too and consider your children's needs, right? Don't neglect other people's needs in pursuit of, you know, your own coping mechanism. Right. And I think that you mentioned this briefly, but I think it's important. Often we don't think about our own needs. That's true. Eventually that catches up with you. Yeah. You know, if you're just focused on others, 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 and you're not taking care of yourself. Yeah. You can do that short term. I think long term, it becomes really problematic. And a pitcher with a hole in the bottom of it isn't going to hold water. (laughs) (laughs) And so you can't give water to other people if your pitcher's got a hole in it. So, you know, don't be the pitcher with a hole in it. Plug your hole, take care of yourself, and then you can help others. You can help the rest of your family. So you make a really good point, Mark, is don't neglect no. yourself in terms of a crisis. I, I think that's really easy for mothers to do. Oh, yeah. And that's what I've seen. And I know I'm making a generalized statement, but I think that mothers have a harder time looking at their own needs. And making they're, time They're always for focused it. on the others, yeah. Or making time to take care of themselves. I mean, I've heard this before where I've, you know, I've recommended, I'm like, to a friend, I'm like, you got to do something for yourself. She's like, I don't have time. And I'm just like, you got to make time. I'm like, you have to, I'm like, you're going to give it to you. (laughs) Yeah. It's like you, you have to make time. You have to figure something out because your tank is empty and you're driving the family car and you're not going to get very much farther on this empty tank. No, you aren't. Yeah. I love a good analogy. Okay. (laughs) 
So this next one, you kind of touched on this a little bit. That's learn right. the art of reframing. And, and so reframing is just changing the narrative. Yep. Changing how you or your perception, yeah. which we have total control over. Yes. You know, it's often that I'll talk to clients about that. You know, yes, you, you're looking at it this way, but you could also have, you could reframe it to look at uh, this way. So reframing is often a word that mental health professionals use. And I like changing the narrative. For some reason, it makes more sense to people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so one thing that's been helpful for me in accepting things is, I guess, just saying this is the way it is. This is my life now. This mm -hmm. is what I have to do. And so I thought of this in terms of, you know, Curtis being when he was diagnosed with type two diabetes at a young age, which was terrifying. And, you know, again, we have a pretty solid relationship. I don't think I, it felt like a major family crisis, but, you know, we both had to accept this is our life now, paying attention to carbs, making healthier choices. This is what we have to do. Right. Yeah. And and so I, it's a sort of reframing of just accepting this is your life now and finding ways to cope and to be mm -hmm. OK with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So this last one, I think, is probably the most crucial, and that mm -hmm. is find and use available resources. And, you know, they are there. And I think especially in terms of families who are faced with disability. There are so many resources, especially kids. So I think that, you know, the word that comes to mind when I look at that is community again. Yeah. I know I've said it before. I just think community is so important, which I, I think extended family and community. But, you know, looking at the available resources, I think one of the one of the things that maybe can come out of this for our listeners is that if you start thinking about it's not like you should dwell on the potential of crises coming up. But Correct. if you think about, okay, what are my resources? Mm -hmm. So that, you know, what do, who, who can I call in in time of need? And then, you know, it's kind of up there in your head that when, when something happens, then you're, you're already, you know, primed to actually go for the resources. So it's mm -hmm. good to think about it, I think, a little yeah. bit. And I think it's also helpful to, I mean, and I'm not saying dwell a lot in the what if, but, you know, ask yourself, how would I handle this situation? You know, what would I do? And it might even be a good conversation to have with your partner, your spouse, yeah. you know, okay. hey, how do you think we would handle this situation if this mm -hmm. happened? You know, and maybe go through some of these things of what resources could we use in this situation or how would we define this event? How would this event affect our family? Uh, you know, those kinds of things. I think that could be a helpful dialogue or yeah. at least an open dialogue about it could create intimacy, if nothing else. Right. And I think this reminds me of something that all parents with children who live in, who live in a home or apartment should do. You say, OK, you don't want to make your child afraid of a fire, but you want to yep. say in the event of a fire, what are we going to do? And yes. you. And so you have a plan and sometimes, you know, every once in a while you practice a plan. Yep. And so all you're doing is preparing for something that might happen and hopefully it will never happen. I so. live in, yeah, I, I live in Indiana. And so we have to say, what do we Tornadoes. do? In the event? <laughs> yes. What do we do in the event of a tornado? What's our family mm. going to do? And so, yeah. you know, and last week we got a, we got really good practice because it was a Monday afternoon and we had some stormy weather and the sirens started going off. You know, and so it was a good opportunity to 
navigate the what if. I mean, thankfully, no tornado or there was no significant damage. And I don't think a tornado actually touched down near us. But it was certainly frightening to our kids. Right. I mean, and so it was just it's a good opportunity to say, what's our plan? If we're at home and we get a tornado warning, what are we going to do? Right. Yeah, and so it's a, a similar thing for other crises to think about it and, you know, think about what you would do. Yeah, yeah, it uh, it can be helpful. All right. So next week, we are going to get into nutrition and mental health. So Mark suggested this topic and I eventually cringed a little bit because I was like, maybe I need this topic. <laughs> okay. I think we have program notes, don't we, Liz, that... Yes. That you could, so in this program note, I'm going to give you some three different podcasts. So our listeners, if they're interested, you can go to these podcasts before. And they're all with uh, a guy I've mentioned before. His name's Andrew Uberman. Mm-hmm. And the first one is with a psychiatrist, Chris Palmer. And that's the one I'm going to be focusing on the mo- most because there's some really interesting research that's going on about what we eat and how it can positively change our mental health. Things like schizophrenia. even, or depression and anxiety. There's another one, Andrew Uberman, called Food and Emotions. And then the third one is Andrew Uberman, Gut and Brain Health. And we've known for quite a while that the, what they call the gut, the gut biome, I think is how they describe it. What goes on in our, the the bacteria that's in our gut actually affects, um, can affect our anxiety and depression, which a lot of people don't, don't realize. Well, if you think about it, your blood sugar is going to affect is is going to affect it too. If your blood sugar drops, you get cranky. That's mental health. Anyway, I find it really interesting. I think it's fascinating, the connection between what we eat and our mental health. Because I think it's very real. Yeah. Well, I mean, we all need food. We all got to eat. And so we're either going to do it right or not so right. That's right. All right. We will 